The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Thursday, September 27th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. How do you prove a negative? Well, for one thing, you try. And if you're trying to prove that Kavanaugh didn't sexually assault Christine Blasey Ford, then you'd have to ask Mark Judge to testify. And if the Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee do not do this, they're not even trying. And I'm not sure the Republicans were trying in their Judiciary Committee today. Because Christine Blasey Ford testified before the Judiciary Committee, and she started off by saying this. I am terrified. And then she proceeded to grab every open-minded viewer in America by the heart or the gut or maybe even the head. And once she got in there, she didn't really let go. The prosecutor, who was contracted by the 11 male Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee, asked disparate and fairly confusing questions. At one point, I wondered if Rachel Mitchell wasn't saying to herself, I got to get away, and even dreaming of an itinerary. Hawaii, Costa Rica, South Pacific Islands, and French Polynesia. A lot of people go with TripAdvisor. Some question witnesses under oath. But I I can't really get at what the prosecutor's point was. Well, we know she was a mouthpiece. She certainly was a fig leaf. Maybe she was resistance from the inside. At least she ran interference for the members who seemed uninterested in appearing in a two-shot with the woman who would come to define herself as one of the more heroic citizens America has ever been introduced to, suddenly. You can say a lot of things about Kavanaugh's other accusers, Particularly, I have lots of questions about Michael Avenatti's client. You can talk about standards of doubt. It's a legitimate enough conversation to have. I had it yesterday. But I do not think a fair-minded person can look at and properly assess Christine Blasey Ford's testimony and say, I found her less than credible. Oh, here's the hole in her argument. Here's the lie. Here's, here's the scurrilous motivation. That just wasn't there. Now, this doesn't mean that the committee won't vote yes and pass the Kavanaugh nomination through to the whole Senate. And it doesn't mean that he won't get confirmed by 51 or even 50 senators. Remember, I'm talking about fair-minded people. It's like the old line that was said to Adlai Stevenson. Senator Stevenson, you have the vote of every right-thinking American. He said it's going to take a lot more than that. I fail, however, to see how a fair-minded individual or a sympathetic person can't credit that appearance. Let's see if the coalition of the fair-minded and the sympathetic will come to include any or many Republican senators. On the show today, I spiel a little bit more about aspects of this hearing and Donald Trump's claim that he got the vote of most women. But first, one of the great profile writers of our time is paired with one of the most fascinating subjects. It is a look at the Klansmen who defected. Eli Saslow is here to talk about his book, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist. Derek Black was beyond one of the most important voices in the white nationalist, white supremacist movement. He was the future and he was the past. He was the past because his father, Don, was head of the KKK and his godfather, although 
it was even closer than that, was David Duke. He was the future because he knew technology. He was reaching thousands of people on his internet radio show, and he was basically the architect of the Stormfront website, which had a greater reach than the Ku Klux Klan ever had. And then he went to college, and then he changed. The story of his transformation is rising out of hatred, the awakening of a former white nationalist, and Eli Saslow, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, is here to talk about it. Hello, Eli. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. What I want to do in this interview is talk about two or three things. I want to talk about Derek's story, but then I want to just talk about the question. Take Derek's specific ideology out of it, just how to change a mind. It's an interesting story of how to change a mind. So let's start with Derek enrolling in New College uh, in Florida, near but not very near to where he grew up. How did he make that decision and why did he want to go to a college that was outside of his white nationalist milieu? Yeah, I mean, Derek grew up in this really insular white nationalist world. Uh, He lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. It's a diverse place, but his parents had pulled him out of the public schools um, because they thought they were too diverse. And and he lived basically in this house that was hidden back from the street by overgrown mango trees and spent a lot of time going with his father and with his godfather, David Duke, to these white nationalist conferences around the country. Uh, Really rose to the top of this thing. Um, And and the first chance that he really had to, to break away from that and go somewhere else was was in college. First, he went to community college because they didn't have much money. And then Derek, being a super bright guy, spoke four languages, um, really smart, really great test scores, got into a lot of schools. The best school that he could afford to go to was the best public school in Florida called New College. Um, and, and New College is a quirky place. I think Derek thought it would maybe fit him because it has a high population of homeschooled students. It's only about a thousand kids. And Derek knew it was liberal but it was not in Derek's mind or anybody else's mind that there was any possibility that his ideology would change. He was on the radio every day for two hours talking about how he's how he was going to spread white nationalism to the world. So I think never in his mind was, was it a thought that a transformation was possible. And he didn't actively court notoriety as a college student while he was there. But certainly by the end of his first year, he did this big spread in Details magazine. He wasn't hiding it, right? No, he wasn't hiding it. I mean, he was quiet about it on campus, in part because Derek, in his philosophy, he was never interpersonally racist. He would never go up to somebody and say offensive things to them. What he thought was effective and what other white nationalists thought was effective was to spread their ideology by trying to talk more about their points of agreement with parts of white America, unfortunately large parts of white America, that felt some sense of ownership over the country and and courting that. So Derek did it mostly through moderating Stormfront, through talking on the radio every day, and through running for public office and winning in his hometown. But on campus, he hung out with Jewish kids. He started dating a Jewish girl. They didn't know who he was. How is, how is he so smart? I know genetics play a role, but it doesn't seem like someone who was brought up in such ignorance, who had no schooling. I know you said he was homeschooled. His homeschooling was watch whatever you want. How does this person, while being extremely ignorant, also have a computer for a brain that is able, that allows him to process this information. That's really unusual. Yeah. And sometimes uh, for me reporting on him for so much time, he can be difficult to keep up with. He's so smart. I I think, so the kind of education that Derek had, which his parents refer to as unschooled, uh, my guess is that would work for less than 1% of children in the (laughs) country. You know, if I was unschooled when I was a kid, uh, I would have like spent the whole week reading about the Broncos upcoming game and not thought about anything else. Uh, Derek decided (laughs) that he was going to 
hatch baby clownfish up from the egg and like raise them and see how you raise baby clownfish. He would spend all of his time at the science museum. He learned all these different languages. And I think his curiosity drove his education. It was also a very imbalanced education. I mean, he got to college and he was, his language skills were off the charts and some like basic math. He just hadn't really done any because nobody had told him to. Um, but his curiosity, uh, you know, just was so, was so huge that, and I think his curiosity is also a huge reason that he found his way out of this. Because when, when people were sending him studies about race, when he began studying history and realizing that he had totally understood medieval history, which is what he came to school to study, he thought he was going to study the great rise of like European warriors who are fighting for the white race. And instead, as he went back through documents in several languages, he realized that really whiteness didn't exist in, in, in that time. And the society that was way ahead was the Islamic society and that Baghdad was a city that was far beyond anything in Europe. Um, so I think that curiosity drove a lot of the transformation as well. So there's Derek at New College making some friends. In between his first and second year there, people figure out who he is. And most people have a choice. The college itself allows him to stay. He's a student in good standing. He's widely shunned, but some students make a different choice. Students who are in Hillel and absolutely hate his ideology. Who were they and why did they choose to, you know, befriend the guy? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think... Quickly, I'd go back and say that right now, particularly on the left in the country, I think there's often this idea that it's either civil resistance or outreach and discourse, that it's this binary choice between these two philosophies of how we change people's minds. In Derek's case, those two things were both super necessary and they actually work together. So the fact that when Derek first was uh, was outed on this campus, the fact that he was shunned, that some students started a campaign to push him off campus to shut down the school for a day in protest, that made Derek reconcile for the first time with how awful his ideology was in the minds of his peers. It also left him uh, basically alone. He was off campus by himself. He had no community. So then when some of these students, two two Jewish kids in particular, first invited him to say, hey, you want to come over on Friday night uh, for beer and wine and hang out, two kids that he knew from freshman year, nobody else was inviting him to do anything. Uh, right. so, so he said yes. And, and their, their impact on him was sort of facilitated by the shunning that, that, that started. Right. So this is psychologically the whole community, but for two or three people play the bad cop and then the good cop can comes in. They, they, they didn't coordinate it, but psychologically, if you're broken down, you're more open to anyone holding out a hand or a lifeline. And that's what happened with Derek. For sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, what these two Jewish students did, Matthew and Moshe, um, the thing about it that was so remarkable to me is that they, first, they, they knew everything Derek had said. They'd read every message board post. Uh, you know, they'd printed them out in some cases and put them on their walls. You know, Jews worm their way into society. Jews must go. They knew all these things. They'd marinated in them. And they'd both experienced heavy shares of, of anti-Semitism in their own lives. And they decided not only were they going to invite Derek over, but they weren't going to talk to him about it because they, they thought— this is not, if, if we try to build a case against him, he's going to leave. He's going to say, screw these guys, and yeah. he's not going to come back. So they made this tactical choice that we are going to build a relationship. And week after week after week, for two years, they invited this kid over for dinner. And sometimes during that time, Derek, during the week in between these Shabbat dinners, was in the woods of Tennessee on a stage with David Duke. And these kids were still inviting him back again and not talking about that. Yeah, after the first uh, after the first round of, I forgot if the first time was Monopoly or just a, a nice get-together, they looked at each other and say, okay, Jews won, white supremacists zero. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, one of the lessons in this uh, for me is um, the absolute 
persistent investment that it takes to change anybody's mind about anything, especially now when, you know, we're so polarized as a country. It seems like we're, we're so divided. It's impossible for anybody to, to change in, on the smallest issue, much less for the future heir to the white supremacist movement to suddenly end up as a prominent anti-racist. Uh, but, but in this case, despite the fact that the change wasn't happening quickly, that they really had no sign that a change was happening for a long time until after Derek graduated from New College, they kept at it. Yeah. They, they stuck with it for two years. As did the other main character in the story, Allison, who, when you wrote about it in the Post, she wasn't even mentioned. So I don't know if you didn't have her permission or didn't know about her, but she was essentially his very good friend and sometimes girlfriend, and she hated everything he stood for, but also was his friend, and that was really important, and she was a wedge to opening his mind. Absolutely. And the other thing that I think Allison did that was really important is that she armored herself with the facts and then had really direct debates with Derek about his ideology, which was effective because Derek had tried hard to base his ideology on facts. Of course, most of those facts were flawed. But when she could come to him and present things like, here's why your ideas about racial science or IQ score differentials are totally wrong. Derek was smart enough. First, he trusted her enough to listen. Second, he was smart enough to see that he was wrong about it. And you know, I think there's also comfort in the fact that all the facts are basically on the side of the anti-racist also. Yes. Um, so here we have all the forces and all the tactics being brought to bear. The mass shunning makes him vulnerable. The outreach from friends opens him up. The marshalling of facts, which psychiatrists tell us is no good, in this case, was good. Right. And for all this, a whole community, you know, we're really talking about just thousands of people. Not Most of them weren't thinking about him every day, but right. we see him and flip him off on the way to the library, right? Thousands of people working together can change one mind. Right, I know. I don't know, is that uplifting or is that totally exhausting? Well, I think it's a little of both. It's supposed to be uplifting because his mind was changed. But there's a lot of research into why people do and don't change minds. And a real reason why people stick to even wrong beliefs is that there are great social costs to changing your mind. Right. And to admit if you are within a certain milieu to one day say, I now believe in global warming comes with a lot of costs that make you unsafe in other ways or harm you in other ways. So long way of saying that adhering to ignorant beliefs is often adaptive behavior. And I don't know uniquely, but it's very strange to have a guy like Derek who, because he changed his he changed his group. He changed his group identity. He yep. went from a world of almost only Klansmen to a world of college students. That almost never happens, but that's what opened him up. He, Because he changed his group identity, he saw it more adaptive and advantageous to agree with the new group, which happens to be the group that has the facts on its side. Right. And I, and I think in Derek's case, uh, the costs have been profound, you know, and, and in some ways, Derek disavowing all this stuff, becoming public about it, uh, it's sort of a, a, an act of basic human decency. On the other hand, in order to do that, he has given up the relationships that he had with his family. First, he changed his name, moved across the country, had real risks to his safety, still has real risks to his safety, and absolutely detached himself from the first 23 years of his life. And so I think uh, it takes a lot for somebody to make that change. The other thing is most of us in our lives are not going to encounter and try to change the opinions of somebody who is the future heir to the white nationalist movement. Most of us, I think when we're confronting this stuff or thinking about how to deal with these divides in our own lives, it's with the much more pernicious, subtle racism that yeah. we see around us all the time. You know, and, and so I guess my hope is that 
if somebody can move from that far on one end to this far on the other end, you know, it's, it's potentially uh, something that we can do with people who have much less distance to travel. A couple interesting other things about Derek. To get him to do this, this is how the book starts, was how much of a, uh, how much of a heavy lift it was a long time. I mean, because when I first reached out, reached out to Derek and found him, uh, he said no. He was not ready to be written about. This was an unusual case. How, how long ago was this? This was probably two and a half years. Yeah. Um, you know, and I have stories. 2015. 2015. Yeah. I have stories like this sometimes where I reach out to people. They don't want to be written about. And then, and, I, and what I you know of him was uh, former Klansman defects. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'd had to work hard to find him because he'd changed his name. And, and I found him in the place and he said, no way. This is a risk to my safety and my privacy. I'm not going to do it. The unusual case in this instance was that Derek and I stayed in touch, occasional emails. Um, but instead of me convincing him in any way to do it, what convinced him was he watched over the next year as the 26 campaign was happening and saw all of these talking points of his childhood surfacing all around him. And yeah. I think Derek felt and like... coming out of the mouth of Donald Trump. Yeah, and, and yeah. Derek felt like he'd planted all these seeds and they were growing around him. And he felt in small ways culpable. Um, and, and I think he also felt really scared because he understood the power of this rhetoric in the country. And I think now what he's trying to figure out is... Uh, how to satisfy his own academic goals and his own his own curiosities, which are really important to him, but also realizing that there's a moment, uh, there are things happening in the country that he really knows things about and has the power to speak to and how 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 to live a life in both of those spaces. So he eventually said, I, I'm ready to, to do this. I mean, it still is. The act of building trust as a reporter takes a long time. Uh, and eventually, this book is based not just on interviews and time spent with all these people, but on all of their private correspondence. Uh, most of the characters in the book are millennials who document their lives relentlessly. Yeah. So, you know, they were giving me hundreds of pages of G-chats and text messages, which allows— There are, hearts, there, there are smiley emojis in the book. There Don't are worry. smiley yeah. emojis in yeah. the book, yes. That's, uh, you can read about a racist transformation in, in emojis. It's American 20, 2018. Um, finally, sometimes on this show, I puzzle— about the statement um, that we heard before the white supremacists got so prominent again. And it was, um, you know, it's often the dog whistle racism, the subtle racism that's the most pernicious. And then the Nazis with Tiki Torture showed up and I said, no, those guys are the most pernicious. Right. But what do, you, what do you think? Do you think that the most dangerous is the Derek Black eight years ago racism or just the kind of low-grade racism that informs a lot of the agenda of one of our political parties. I think it's undoubtedly the the latter. I mean, I, I think that um, low grade, I guess that's that's not you know I don't think that's the best way to say it. The subtle racism that defines so much of of what the country is and has been is is a huge threat, I think, to us going forward because the way the demographics are shifting in the country, what white nationalists have always believed is that eventually. White, white people in this country or, or, you know, however they define white people are going to get to the point where they say this country no longer feels like ours. It's being taken away from us. And, and white nationalists believe that will be the big instigation point of uh, major racial separation. Um, you know, and, and if you just look at the demographics from one presidential election to the next in terms of whites as a voting bloc, we're moving closer and closer towards whites identifying uh, as, as like a racial party. Um, and, and I think that's the great hope of white nationalists, that eventually, like a minority, whites will bind together and do something to take the country back. Uh, yeah, and they point out they will be a minority. Exactly, and they will be a minority. Or at least no longer the majority. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's those people who are in that 30 to 40 percent of, of white Americans who think that they experience more discrimination than people of color, yes. which is factually 
insane, right. obviously. Right, and right. So it is most white Republicans, and it's still 40% of all white people in America. Exactly. So yeah. so what Derek and other white nationalists did uh, over the last years is they banned all slurs from Stormfront. They got rid of some—they tried to scrub their their ideology of its racist language. Does, uh, you can't find a swastika on Stormfront. You can't find a swastika on there. And instead, they started trying to speak to this false sense of grievance that is a very popular idea in most of white America. It, I think that is the greater threat because that's a much more powerful block. Rising out of hatred, the awakening of a former white nationalist. That man's name is Derek Black. The author of the book is Eli Saslow, who is not only winner of a Pulitzer Prize, but I think in three of the four years around winning that prize, he was a finalist, which means the guy can write. Thanks, Eli. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. The Christine Blasey Ford hearing raised questions and issues and emotions. Strictly speaking, it didn't provide much incontrovertible facts, except we did learn one thing about Dr. Ford. It's a simple thing and perhaps an easily overlooked thing, but it's an important thing. And that thing is that she is Dr. Ford. She prefers to go by Dr. Ford. In the days before the testimony, remember, she had been called Dr. Ford and Dr. Blasey Ford and Dr. Blasey. But the senators called her Dr. Ford, I presume, at her insistence, and that settles a question. I was thinking about how little we really know about many of the women who are at the heart of so many of the stories about misdeeds of men, how their names, their very names, remain opaque to us. I don't like to talk melodramatically about erasure or having a voice. I mean, it's 2018. We all have the means to be heard if we want to. But it is a pretty stark reminder of who gets to be the real, meaningful people with facts and biographies and names attached to them and who we're left to guess at. There is a Dr. Ford. Alongside her, the example of a woman who was made sport of in Brett Kavanaugh's yearbook, Renata Schroeder Dolphin, or as we heard from media reports, the Renate Alumni Club. Look, Lord knows I've whiffed on names left and right, and this name is spelled R-E-N-A-T-E, but I am told that someone of German or Austrian extraction would spell it that way and still say Renata. Then there was Riley Hunter, or maybe Riel Hunter. She's the woman who had an affair with John Edwards, had a baby with John Edwards. Riley, Riel, still unclear. We don't know because these women want to stay out of the public eye. It's not so much an issue of voicelessness, really. It's of consent. They never asked for this. They never asked for us to know their names, and so we don't. Stephanie Clifford may just bring down our tawdry president. She wants to be known as Stormy Daniels, and so that's what we know her as. When men are laid low and women are the vectors of their disgrace, these women seem to have but two choices. To monetize their notoriety like Stormy or Sidney Leathers, the Anthony Weiner sexting partner, or to desperately wish to go away, to say, I never asked for this, maybe to be thrust in a spotlight and if you're Anita Hill, to be ruined. When Monica Lewinsky complicated this binary a little bit, this siren or silence choice, we didn't know how to deal with it for decades. Just in the last few years, have we been giving her her say without our Snickers? So why is this important? Well, I'm speaking to you today on the day right after Donald Trump, for the sixth time, claimed 
this. It will be a rough night for Donald Trump because the women won't come out. We got 52%, right? 52, right? This is a lie. The exact nature of the lie is telling. Since he only got 4% of the African-American women's vote, it's really hard to get 52% of the women's vote. And indeed, he got 41 or 42% of the women's vote, by the way, tied with the worst performance among women in presidential history. So is it just another lie, specifically a lie that diminishes the type of American Trump is always diminishing? Should it matter more than the other lies matter? I think it should, because this is a lie that has been working and I have proof. Here is Gretchen Carlson a little while back while talking to Larry Wilmore on his podcast. Women were that you're saying women put them over the uh, oh, top. Oh, yeah, they did. Right. 53%, yeah. right? Now, Carlson has refashioned herself as a champion of women's rights. That misstatement that you just heard was in the midst of gleefully talking about anti-harassment legislation that she would like to put on Trump's desk to make him squirm a little bit. But she still gets the basic facts wrong and perpetuates the lie. Why? Well, maybe because she marinated in the propaganda machine that is Fox News for so long. Maybe she really doesn't know the difference. What I think is that she quickly reached for a number and the one right at the top of her head was the 52% or 53% presidential lie number, the six-times-so-far lie number. It shows that his lies are working, and it's of a piece with the overall diminishment of women, ignoring of women, the shunting aside and not even knowing the names of inconvenient women in the path of mostly Republican politicians. So today, Christine Blasey Ford put her name in the congressional record, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, Dr. Ford. It's a name that is as important, at least in this moment, as Judge Kavanaugh and a name that just might forestall there ever being a Justice Kavanaugh. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. I would like to tell you about two shows upcoming tomorrow and Monday. Tomorrow, Isaac Butler is here. Monday, John McWhorter is here. They'll be hosting those shows for me. I can't wait to listen. I'll be in Texas talking to people in the name of The Gist and Slate. I should tell you that TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Oomperu, Peru, 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 and thanks for listening, y'all. <laughs>